0: Welcome to Cross-Border Tax Talks, where we discuss the latest trends in international taxation, from U.S. tax treaties to the OECD's latest developments. I'm Doug McConey, PwC's International Tax Services Global Leader. The Pillar 2 engine from PwC is a game-changer for Pillar 2 modeling, provision, and compliance calculations. Built on a graph system utilizing over 20 years of international tax technology, this centralized rules engine is built by a team of Pillar 2 experts from around the globe. PwC's Pillar 2 engine is currently available as a service and will be licensable in July 2024. On this week's episode of Cross-Border Tax Talks, we're back in Westminster Studios in St. Louis, Missouri, where I'm excited to have Nils Cousin back on the podcast. Nils is a Washington, D.C.-based international tax partner specializing in inbound taxation in the U.S. Nils, welcome back to the podcast and congrats on your recent admission to the partnership. Thanks, Doug. So Nils, the last time you were on here, I think you were the last podcast that we had in person before the pandemic. And uh, it's nice to have you here to the St. Louis studio for the first time, to Westminster studio, and I'm excited to talk about tax treaties. But before we do that, um, I noted on your LinkedIn profile, you have an LLM from Georgetown, law degree from the University of San Diego, and an undergrad in mathematics from Emory University. So my question, how has your mathematics degree really prepared you for your experiences as a tax attorney and or how do you end up going from math to law to tax?
1: Well, um, it's funny. The, The great thing about majoring in math in undergrad is I found out at some point, probably in my junior year, that I was not nearly as good at math as I thought I was going to be. And I had always been very good at things like calculus, statistics, anything where you have to solve a problem. But then, when you started getting into just the theory and the proofs, I, I realized very quickly I wasn't very good at it. I also majored in political science, Ah, right? Okay. So it was a double major. And at some point, I just decided to go to law school, not thinking necessarily about tax law specifically. But once I started taking tax classes, I realized, oh, this actually kind of works the way that I do think. So. I think it's the, the things that made me think I was good at math before I found out I wasn't are, are sort of the skills that I think ended up translating to uh, you know, a, a career in tax law.
0: Yeah, I can relate because I ended up doing accounting because I, I always enjoyed math. I kind of topped out in like BC calculus where I realized, all right, I've hit my max. And then did accounting, really was not overly excited about the underlying curriculum. Went to law school because I thought I wanted to be a trial lawyer and had a very similar experience. I took that first tax class and was like, oh. This I enjoy this. It makes sense. It's how I think. And uh, then I've now been in an accounting firm for 25 years. So uh, <laughs> the, the strategy of going to law school to get away from accounting obviously uh, did not really play itself out, uh, but really enjoyed. And I think it's interesting because there are a number of people, and particularly outside the U.S. where we don't have some of those specific you know, requirements to have an accounting degree. There's frankly a number of people kind of around the network and around the globe that I've met that uh, have math degrees. So all right, enough about our long, long ago undergraduate studies. Let's move on to tax treaties. And so it's been a while since we've talked about a tax treaties um, in the U.S. Uh, specifically or focused on the U.S., but there actually has been, I don't want to really say movement. I think that might be a little bit of a overreach, but there's been some action. How about that on tax treaties, particularly in, in the with the U.S.? And that's really what we're going to focus on today. But Maybe to set the table, can you tell us what are the what is the purpose of tax treaties and what role do they play
1: in international taxation? Yeah, sure. There's there's a couple of roles. I think the one that for us who uh, um, you know deal with tax treaties comes up a lot the most is is really just the issue where if you have cross-border transactions where a resident of one country might be doing business in the US, there arises the risk that both countries are going to seek to tax the same item of income, and that leads to the risk of double taxation. So a big role that tax treaties serve is to try to reduce or, or eliminate as much as possible those instances of, of uh, double taxation, the idea being that that will facilitate cross-border flow of, of trade and, and goods and things like that and will ultimately be good for both treaty partners. Another thing that's very important is to try to eliminate or reduce the ability for a fiscal evasion with respect to taxes. So tax treaties will have information exchange provisions that would allow or require con- uh, one country to send information to the other country about the business dealings that residents of the other country might be doing uh, you know, in, in the first country. And then the other one is just cooperation. Uh, there are often mutual agreement procedures where if a resident of the treaty country, for example, would think that the actions of the U.S. are inconsistent with a treaty policy or something like that, they can invoke a procedure whereby the tax authorities of both countries are supposed to get together and talk about it and resolve the issue.
0: And what's the term for that? Mutual agreement okay. procedure. And and talk a little bit about um, the, the concept of competent authority. And, and what does that mean in the context of treaties?
1: Sure. So all treaties will have this sort of term of art that defines the competent authority, which is, um, you know, ultimately, whoever the relevant country wants to assign as being the person that's tasked to deal with these sort of treaties. In the US, the competent authority sits, of course, within our Treasury Department, IRS. And so um, we think about, we hear about invoking competent authority. Mm-hmm. So one way that would be is through the mutually, mutual agreement procedures. If you are going to initiate a mutual agreement procedure at the US level, you would do that within the competent authority. Um, another thing that you'll see is there are provisions in treaties. For example, we have a limitation on benefits provisions that are very complicated. All of those will have a procedure where, if you don't meet some of these objective tests, you can ask the treaty country unilaterally where you're trying to get treaty benefits to to give you essentially a ruling that you would that you are going to be eligible for those treaty benefits. And same thing here, that would be something a case that you would represent to the competent authority in that country and what are those what does limitation on benefits mean so all of our treaties back in the day right to, to qualify for treaty benefits you have to be a resident of the treaty country right so let's say we have a treaty between the united states and germany which we do german residents such as german individuals or german companies are doing business here in the u.s would in theory be eligible for treaty benefits but over the past 50 plus years as um there's been more global mobility and international commerce, it became readily apparent that someone who doesn't really have a connection to Germany that might be from a country that doesn't have an income tax treaty with the United States could just set up a German company, be a fully German resident, and say, oh, I'm going to get treaty benefits. And so we call that treaty shopping. And so that's where our treaties over the past, you know, ever since really the 70s and 80s, have started to put anti-treaty shopping provisions in the treaties. And a number of countries take a sort of subjective principle purpose test approach. But the U.S., starting in right around the early 1980s, started doing what they would call limitation on benefits provisions, which are articles that have this series of objective tests. And you know each test is premised on the fact that if you objectively meet these criteria, you're probably not treaty shopping. So if you're an individual resident of a country, we're going to give you treaty benefits. If you are... A publicly traded company that's regularly traded on an exchange in that country, we think you're probably there for real business reasons aside from just getting benefits under the treaty. And so there are a number of other objective tests. Uh, you just have to satisfy one of them. But the evolution of our tax treaties here in the U.S. recently, or, or I mean, really since the mid-80s, has been to periodically revise what we think the uh, limitation on benefits article should look like. We do that by... Uh, the, the U.S. Treasury releases model income tax treaties, as does the OECD. But the U.S. model treaties generally are, are the starting point for negotiations. They, they try to indicate what sort of the current policy behind income tax treaties are. And so we had one in, in 1980. Then we had one in 1996, which was the one that first had a comprehensive LOB article. 2006 again, and then you know the LOB article in 2006 got more restrictive than in 96 and and more comprehensive. And then the final or or the most recent model treaty that we've had in the U.S. was actually released in 2016. And that, again, the LOB article there has gotten very, very, very complicated.
0: Yeah, and that I'll note because we'll come back to this. It was that the the last U.S. model income tax um, convention was before, obviously, the TCJA. Mm -hmm. So a number of provisions that have created some controversy in the context of of treaty, particularly BEAT, which we'll get into. Um, Maybe the last thing I'll mention, and this is probably stating the obvious for most of the audience that is involved in international taxation, but tax treaties also obviously can help reduce or potentially even eliminate withholding taxes on some of these cross-border payments. So oftentimes there's clauses with respect to interest, dividends, royalties, other similar types of payments, which can be very advantageous for companies that qualify under the limitation on benefits provisions.
1: Yeah, but that's actually a very important point, right? And it goes back to that first thing of the avoiding double taxation, really, how do they do that? And there's there's two key mechanisms. One is they could just say, look, you know, both countries can tax it but the resident state has to give some kind of exemption or a foreign tax credit but a lot of times what will happen is they'll say look if the resident of the other country does business in or has income from let's say the us then unless they have enough business presence to have a permanent establishment here in the us we're going to look at the type of income it is and then there will be these very specific provisions in the treaty that say the, the source state may only tax it up to a certain amount or may not tax it at all. So a lot of our treaties would say the tax rate on interest is zero. For dividends, it's, there are various rates. It may be 15, it may be five. In certain treaties, it may also be zero if you meet appropriate provisions. And, and so a lot of times, that is we would be seeking to impose our U.S. withholding tax on mm-hmm. these outbound payments that are not connected with the trader business, and that's where the treaty reduces that tax. Now, interestingly... Nothing in the treaty requires a a treaty country to reduce that, to eliminate the withholding. It's actually perfectly appropriate for a country to say, we're going to fully withhold and you have to go get a refund or something like Mm -hmm. that. Many countries do, however, have procedures that you can undertake prior to getting the payment to go ahead and apply the treaty benefits. In the U.S., those procedures are actually self-reporting and form-driven via our Form W-8.0. Ben and mm-hmm. W 8 Ben E, but it's important to note that the procedures in a lot of other countries may be considerably more complex for sure. All right, so talk a little bit about how does the process
0: work to actually get a treaty enacted in the. US Because I think for a lot we've got a lot of non-US listeners and that's quite a mystery of you know yeah. things have been very challenging over the course of the last almost 15 years insofar so far as trying to get treaties uh, fully enacted. So how does that process
1: work in the US? Well, well, the first two steps are actually pretty similar to every other country. First, got to start talking and negotiating with the treaty partner, right? And then you have to come to an agreement and sign the treaty. In the U.S., it's the U.S. Treasury Department that's in charge of, of uh, you know, negotiating those treaties. But once the treaty is signed, it needs to be ratified in both countries. And so I think what you want to hear about a little bit is the U.S. ratification procedures. And in the U.S., even though we have two houses of Congress, it's only the Senate that has that is involved in ratifying a tax treaty, um, and so when our treaties get uh, get signed, they get sent over from the Treasury Department to the Senate, where the first thing that will need to happen is that the Senate Committee on Foreign Relations needs to look at the treaty um, and then favorably report it out to the full Senate for a vote on that treaty, and then in theory, what would happen is the Senate will take that, they will vote on the treaty, um, you know. They, and will either pass it or reject it. They may add certain reservations to the treaty, and we'll talk about reservations in the context of a few specific examples later. Um, But in practice, the Senate procedural rules make it a little bit more difficult to actually ratify a treaty than that. And the reason for that is that the Senate has this procedure uh, called unanimous consent, meaning that it's very easy to bring something to a floor vote if all hundred senators do not object to doing so, but if it's not unanimous and if there's even a single senator who objects uh, to a floor vote, then it doesn't get to a floor vote unless there, unless and until there's fairly extensive debate about the treaty. And over the past about twelve years now, it, it's hard to believe we've had at least we've had one senator who who very firmly believes that. Um, is against our, our newer income tax treaties and our pending income tax treaties his objection is really one about information exchange um, he's not in favor of the u.s sending information uh, about taxpayers abroad to other countries and so he's been fairly he's been successful in certainly delaying the process of any treaty or protocol to treaty ratification uh, over what it would have been um, he hasn't been, entirely successful in preventing all treaties uh, that were pending or protocols that were pending from being ratified. But it's it's delayed the process and it's made it more difficult. And that <clears throat> that senator is Rand Paul mm-hmm.
0: from the Commonwealth of, uh, of Kentucky. Yes. And um, the other thing I would note on the process, just particularly for some of those that are outside the U.S., you had said that the negotiations start with the Treasury Department. And to remind some of our non-US listeners that Treasury Department actually sits within the executive branch. Yes. And so I think under the Constitution, the concept was, well, the the Treasury Department, really the executive branch, has the opportunity to be able to negotiate those. But then as kind of the balance of powers, then they determined that the Senate, um, as part of the Congress, just the one House, the one, um, just the Senate would be the ones that actually approve those treaties. Yep. So So let's talk then about because that's very helpful context, Nils. Let's talk about some of the action that we've recently seen in the context of of U.S. treaties. And I thought we would start with the U.S.-Chile treaty. So tell us a little bit about that and kind of that process and and uh, some items to note with respect to that treaty.
1: Uh, It got ratified. It's uh, shocking, I know. Um, I'll back it up a little bit more and kind of go back to what I was saying. Senator Paul has been holding up things, right? And there really have been since. he entered. He was elected first elected in twenty ten. So I think he started serving in you know, January twenty eleven. So we have a number of things that had been pending that were um, from two thousand nine, two thousand ten. That's when they were signed. Um, a couple of years ago, two protocols that were pending were ratified, and that was uh, Spain and Switzerland. Spain, Switzerland, so But we still had other treaties uh, that were outstanding that were pending that have not been ratified, and those were, the most notably, Hungary, Poland, and Chile. Um, I haven't seen movement on Hungary and Poland, but uh, the Chile Treaty was actually ratified uh, fairly recently. Now, when the Senate ratified that treaty, it uh, added two reservations to that treaty— that were really there for for the fact that since that treaty was negotiated and signed, we had our 2017 tax reform. Right. That tax reform made several pretty key changes. One was the enactment of this base erosion anti-abuse tax, and then the other one was just a fundamental change in our foreign tax credit system, for indirect tax credits from you know from foreign subsidiaries. And so, one of the reasons that some of these treaties, um, Chile. Poland and Hungary didn't move when, say, Spain did, is because they're fundamentally new treaties as opposed to Spain being a protocol that just updated specific mm-hmm. things, and so, same with Switzerland. And so some had a concern, there, there was debate, but some had a concern that arguments could be made that this treaty might, uh, that, that if the treaty were ratified, it would be inconsistent with the BEAT tax and might not authorize the BEAT tax. And the concern there is that in U.S. law, which is different, I think, from a number of other countries, treaties are not superior to our domestic statutory law. They're on an even keel, meaning that if they fundamentally conflict, the later in time would govern. So for any treaties that are outstanding and are in force, then the BEAT gets enacted. If there is an irreconcilable conflict, you'd say, well, the BEAT trumps. It's later in time. But for a treaty that enters into force afterwards, there's a question about that. now. The U.S. Treasury Department's um, position very consistently has been there's there's absolutely nothing in these treaties that conflicts with the BEAT, but that's still one thing where they had been trying to negotiate specific um, you know exchange of notes or things like that about the BEAT. The Chile treaty uh, moved and was ratified without an exchange of notes, but it does have that reservation as well as a reservation about the. Um, how to apply the foreign tax credit provisions, the relief from double taxation Mm -hmm. article in the treaty. And what that means is that we now actually need to go back to Chile, and Chile needs to approve those reservations in terms of ratifying the treaty. So the treaties will have these very specific procedures for once both countries have ratified the treaties, they are supposed to formally exchange instruments of notification that they've done so. And then there's a timeline in the treaty as to when it enters into force. And so it, it's tempting to think, oh, great, we've ratified it. Obviously, we were the holdup. Um, we've ratified it, and now we just need to notify and then it enters into force. But we actually do have to see what Chile does with those reservations.
0: And I will note that the treaty was signed in February of 2010 uh, and then was actually the Senate approved it in June of 2023. So. Over 13-year process. Yeah. All right. So let's move on to um, kind of to just moving backwards a little bit, the U.S.-Croatia Treaty, which the, the U.S. signed in December of 2022. Tell us a little bit about that and anything
1: interesting to note. Yeah. So this is this might have been the the last remaining, if not one of the last remaining, but maybe even the last remaining, country in the European Union with which we didn't have an income tax treaty. So it's certainly high time that there was a treaty with Croatia. Um, and and that was essentially signed. And, and that's great. And of course, now it's pending. And we'll have to go through all those ratification procedures that we just talked about, which, you know, even in the best of times, e- even without a senator holding up the, the process, it does take time, right? It, they don't, it doesn't immediately go to the Senate, and within five days, the Senate Foreign Relations right. Committee picks it up. They, they've got many other things to do. And, you know, look, I'm a tax lawyer. I'd love to think that tax law is the most important and pressing thing. Same. But the Senate Foreign Relations Committee has got other things that they're going to prioritize over tax treaties, right? Right. There, there's, like, thing things like international. There's wars. There's yeah. things like that. A few other things on their plate. Just, just a few, yeah. Um, but the, what's really sort of interesting – from about the U.S.-Croatia treaty is that it's the first treaty that's been signed and therefore become public because we certainly do not make public any of the negotiations of or the the, the details of what's going on in treaty negotiations, other than potentially announcing that we are negotiating with people. Mm-hmm. Is that it's the first treaty that really incorporates all these new provisions that were put into the 2016 model treaty. And as I already mentioned, one of those is an extremely um, I don't want to say necessarily restrictive but an extremely complicated limitation of benefits provisions that that makes it very um difficult for someone to not for an individual but for a lot of companies to ascertain whether they could actually qualify for benefits under the treaty and and tax lawyers and advisors for that matter Well, yeah, I mean, (laughs) it's complicated. (laughs) It's certainly complicated for us. That's why I have to call you Nils. That's well, that's what I'm here for. Um, Yeah. But then another thing, which is I think you already alluded to, is that the the 2016 model treaty had a number of provisions that um, that were additional anti-abuse rules. There was a um, special tax regimes provision, which, which ultimately got at sort of hybrid transactions and hybrid arrangements. There was a provision um, dealing with limiting treaty benefits for uh, companies that hang, engage in what the US calls inversion transactions, where a US-parented company through a deal or otherwise becomes non-US-parented. Um, there, uh, there were uh, rules about uh, treaty residents who had branches in other countries and, and were getting certain types of income. So all of these are are additional complicated rules, but as you mentioned, the 2017 tax reform actually enacted a lot of different rules that just sort of shut that down anyway, just more broad fundamental, right? We have anti-hybrid rules now, as do most other countries. So those have all been enacted as a a result of the the BEPS provisions and, and things like that. And so arguably... There's not really that much of a pressing need to have a rule like that in a in a U.S. income tax treaty. It's there, um, but it just it adds additional complexity, right? If you have uh, ultimately, let's say the Croatia treaty were to get ratified, you are have a Croatian company that you know is getting interest from a U.S. US affiliate or something along those lines. You'll have to go through the residence. You have to go through the limitation of benefits. You have to go through our U.S. domestic law anti-hybrid rules. And then you'd have to, you know, ideally the treaty anti-hybrid rules or special tax regime rules wouldn't apply on top of that. Um, but it's just another thing that you'd have to think about. Yeah, and I'll
0: note that the U.S.-Croatia treaty is the first tax treaty that the U.S. has signed in more than a decade. So we'll see if that is a, is a sign of times to
1: come. Um, we'll see. Yeah, and they have sort of variously announced that, you know, they're trying to negotiate or have done negotiations with with a few other with a few other countries, I, you know, I, I believe back in, in 2016, there, there was some talk that we had actually, and this was again, this is a while ago now, right? This is during the Obama administration still. I think there was some talk that we had signed a treaty with Vietnam, but that never got published. I don't know whether it was mm-hmm. actually just close to signature and, and then was abandoned. Uh, I, I don't even know. But, you know, we've announced, I think... Um, Last year, they announced that they're trying to start negotiations on some updates to the U.S.-Switzerland Income Tax Treaty, mm. and we're hoping to accomplish that quickly. But as I said earlier, short of announcing that they're talking to someone, the U- the U.S. Treasury ends up becoming, you know, for good reason, I think kind of a black box on what's going on sure. with the treaty negotiations.
0: All right. So let's move on to the U.S.-Hungary Treaty. So the U.S. Treasury <laughs> Department took the rare step. Um, in July of 2022, so a little over a year ago, of providing notice to Hungary, Hungary that it is terminating the U.S. Hungarian tax treaty, which has been in operation since 1979. So, when does that become effective? What's the status of that, and uh, um, what could we potentially, what could taxpayers expect as they think
1: about uh, the the uh, termination of that treaty? Sure. So, th- this is a, this really is an interesting one because. Um there is a pending new U.S.-Hungary tax treaty. That's one of these that's been stuck since, I think, 2010. Uh, but the whole time we've had this older treaty with Hungary, that treaty is one of the few remaining treaties that does not have any type of limitation on benefits provisions, right? So that, that's sort of a feature of that treaty. We, we do have other ones that don't have LOB provisions, but to be fair, they just don't provide a whole lot of benefits, Uh, They're, you know, from back in the 50s and they're Mm -hmm. pretty limited in what they do. The US-Hungary Treaty was a treaty um, and still is a treaty that looks fairly modern in most circumstances in in the sense of having fairly generous benefits for relief of source state tax for, you know, cross-border payments to like to to Hungarian persons or obviously from Hungary to the US. Mm -hmm. Um, and, And does not have a limitation on benefits provisions. So I think the, the US Treasury had been frustrated for a while with that because they, I think they thought that people were sort of inappropriately using using Hungary for tax planning. Again, that ought to be fixed by the fact that we signed a new updated treaty with Hungary back in 2010 that has a very restrictive limitation on benefits provision. but that's been sort of stuck and, and you know wallowing in the Senate like, like these other ones. but they took this fairly rare step of actually cancelling uh, or, or um, terminating. Uh, providing notice of termination of the existing older U.S.-Hungary tax treaty. The reason being a sort of a combination of Hungary having significantly lowered its corporate income tax rate uh, in the time since that treaty was negotiated to, I believe it was 9%, which is you know one of the lowest ones in the world. And then Hungary, I think, also... Um, at the time being perceived as being a little bit recalcitrant on minimum taxes and, and, and things like that. That seems like a long time ago. It does. It really does, <laughs> right? It really does. And so the U.S. provided a notice of termination, and that doesn't instantly terminate a treaty. There is a time period within which certain provisions are still um, in force. And the long and short of it is that all the, all the provisions providing benefits in terms of reducing, let's say, the U.S. withholding tax and things like that, are in effect until the end of this calendar year, so until the end of 2023. But as of January 1, 2024, if a U.S. company pays interest to a Hungarian company, there will no longer be an elimination of the U.S. Uh, um, gross basis, 30% gross basis tax under that treaty. You'll be back to 30%. Now, the final thing there is, well, what do we do about the fact that there's this pending treaty? You know, mm-hmm. if, if if the Senate wanted to, it could just go ahead and ratify that, and suddenly we'd have a treaty, albeit a more restrictive treaty in terms of LOB. We'd have, a, you know, but we'd have another treaty with Hungary again. That's really unlikely, I think. You know, the administration is is not in favor of that happening, and so there's not really um, any momentum to try to assent You know, the the the. I, I, the, the Republicans, I don't think, are necessarily in, in a hurry. Certainly, Senator Paul would still be against mm-hmm. the uptre- updated treaty. And I don't think that the Democrats in the Senate, you know, would really have an appetite after the Democratic president has said, we're not going to have a treaty relationship with Hungary anymore to sort of go behind his back <laughs> and override him. So right unlikely that that is going to move and so i think that's going to be the status yeah. quo
0: interesting development and again just for to, to remind taxpayers that january 1st 2024 future payments you know that treaty will be terminated be terminator the benefits to be able to take from that all right so let's move on to um, a few other issues relevant for i guess for treaties um, and i want to talk about the u.s taiwan tax agreement so this actually isn't a treaty but why a tax agreement and not a treaty,
1: Mills? Well, uh, we get into sort of politics and diplomatic relations mm-hmm. and things like that. We, uh, I, I don't think the status of Taiwan vis-a-vis China is, is the type of thing where while we are certainly supportive of Taiwan and friendly towards Ta- Taiwan and have very... Uh, I think close economic ties in in, in a way. The U.S. government. The U.S. Right? Government. Right. Yeah, 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 exactly. The the U.S. government and well, and there's cross border flow of goods for sure, right? I mean, we mm-hmm. certainly have a lot of uh, you know Taiwanese companies, certainly technology companies sure. that are very active here in the U.S. Um, we 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 do have a policy of not you know signing treaties with Taiwan just because of its sort of its status being um, not necessarily fully internationally recognized as that of a country. Right. And so what you know, if we wanted to have a tax agreement, something like a tax treaty with Taiwan, something that relieves double taxation, the regular channels of negotiating a treaty, signing it, having Taiwan and us ratify it is not something that's possible. And so those in the Senate and and, and, and in Congress in general that are in favor of having something that looks akin to a tax treaty um, have come up with this, this other approach. And what that approach essentially is is passing a domestic law in Congress that extends certain treaty-like benefits or, or certain benefits that are similar to what's in our tax treaties to residents of Taiwan. It's proposed legislation right now. A key note about it is even if it were to pass here, it would only apply if Taiwan were to enact mirror legislation doing the same for U.S. and so this is an interesting thing. There's, there wouldn't be Senate ratification, but of course both chambers of Congress would have to vote on it. Right. Um, but then you would have something that would then be a, a statute that essentially confers treaty-like benefits on certain residents of Taiwan. Um, it would be it, it's, it would be very unique, uh, but it would then also the the way that it would then be enacted in the way, the way that it would be applied is then you'd actually have to go through the regular or the treasury department would write treasury regs that implement how uh, that treaty would be applied and what the rules would be and the procedures.
0: Yeah, pretty novel concept. Um, at least during my career, I'm not aware <laughs> of similar type of, of tax agreements. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Um, All right, so let's move on to the U.S.-Russia treaty. And so this is kind of hot off the press here in the summer of 2023. Tell us about what happened. And there's been a lot, obviously, with with the war in Ukraine, uh, but some some recent tax
1: development here with respect to the U.S.-Russia tax treaty. Yeah, this is... It, it it's funny because I sometimes wonder how much this is just academic, but it's really interesting to me, uh, just from a you know a global politics, but also sort of a treaty policy perspective. And, and
0: more academic to the point that how much actually cross border flows do we have now, given all of the sanctions, and really exactly. how often are we actually applying the treaty? But you're right, this is academically interesting.
1: So sorry yeah. for interrupting. No, no, no. Um, yeah, so we have a we have a tax treaty with Russia, right? We um, We've had it for a long time it like most tax treaties will have these benefits like uh, reduction in um, withholding tax rates on cross-border flows uh, it's got information exchange uh, provisions and all of those things so <clears throat> russia first announced back in march that they were trying to do this but they they officially enacted it into law just recently which they said, we the, we have a number of tax treaties with countries that we perceive to n- now no, no longer be friendly to Russia because of you know, sanctions under the Ukraine war. So the, the U.S. is only one of them, but other countries like the, like the U.K. as well. And so they essentially passed a law that it doesn't terminate the treaties, but it suspends certain provisions of the tax treaties indefinitely, right, um, unless they change the law. But it suspends the provisions that essentially reduce any type of uh, withholding tax rates or other tax rates on cross-border flows. So in the case of the U.S.-Russia treaty, essentially they're saying we will not give any benefits under the dividends article, the interest article, the royalties article, business profits, and any of those other uh, types of things. So the question then is, well, can they do that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? And, and uh, well, obviously they did. Right. So what does that then mean for for... For U.S. tax uh, payers, that might be, again, our academic thing, getting money from Russia that right. Russia is uh, is uh, imposing withholding tax on. Do they? they they're not going to get the treaty benefits, right? So imagine that Russia would ordinarily impose a withholding tax on a dividend out. The treaty would reduce that withholding tax to a lower rate. And so if you were to get the treaty benefits, you ought to be paying the lower withholding tax rate. And, and the question that then arises from a U.S. perspective is, you know, well, the U.S. might impose tax on that different or the U.S. might impose tax on that interest. I ought to get a foreign tax credit for taxes paid to a foreign country. But one of the key concepts in terms of being eligible for a foreign tax credit in the U.S. is that the tax can't be a voluntary tax. It has to be a compulsory tax. And so that's where I think the interesting questions arise is, well, Russia didn't terminate the treaty, you know, it's still in force and it still says that Russia should be giving you this re- reduced rate. So the question then arises, does that mean that the tax that you pay to Russia that's in excess of the treaty rate is actually a non compulsory tax? Right. And and more specifically, you know, I think intuitively, you can. if you're a listener, here, you're probably thinking, well, of course you have to pay it. There's right. no way Russia is going to give you the treaty benefits, right? Um, but the question really is, are there sort of procedural things that you have to do to try to get that Russian tax recovered so that you could say, look, I, I can prove that this is compulsory. I try to get it. I try to tell them that they have to give the treaty rates. Are you supposed to try to go to the Russian government and seek a refund? Are you supposed to do those things? Or can you just you know, throw your hands up and say, look, that's going to be futile. um, And I'll just go ahead and claim the tax credit. So there's uncertainty Mm -hmm. about that. You know, I I mean, we certainly haven't it's early days, of course, but we certainly haven't heard any announcements from from the U.S. government. Now, in terms of, hey, you can't do that. We have this type of treaty. I think Russia's counter argument is that the U.S. actually already announced last year that it was suspending the information exchange provisions of the treaty. We're no longer gonna send information, uh, like US tax information to Russia um, about activities. So while obviously information exchange is a little bit different than the substantive benefits in terms of reduced rates, you know, I think Russia's argument is, well, I mean, you've already suspended part of this treaty.
0: Mm All right, well, let's move from the academic back into a little bit of the more practical here for our last topic. And this is probably, we could spend a whole uh, an entire uh, podcast on this. But in July of 2020, the U.S.-Mexico-Canada Trade Agreement, otherwise known as the USMCA, replaced the North America Free Trade Agreement, NAFTA. Um, how does this impact tax treaties? Because I think this had a, a much maybe bigger collateral impact than, than, than maybe some of our legislators fully appreciate it. So maybe if you can just kind of at a high level explain how that has impacted the ability to, to qualify under certain limitation on benefits provisions. Yeah,
1: um, USMCA versus NAFTA, obviously you replace one free trade agreement between the US, Canada and Mexico with another free trade agreement between those same countries. So in many ways, it's a successor agreement although the administration at the time was very keen to point out that it is not a successor agreement. It's a brand new, better deal or something along those lines. And so, you know, the US, the U.S. posture on USMCA versus NAFTA is that it's a different agreement. A number of our income tax treaties, particularly with, so with Canada, but also in Mexico, but EU countries have specific provisions in the limitation on benefits article that include a what's called a derivative benefits test. It's actually a very very important test for qualifying for treaty benefits for um, multinational companies that are often publicly traded. And the concept of it is is that if you are a resident of a particular country, you know, and we're trying to and you're getting income from the U.S. and we're trying to figure out if you are treaty shopping. One of the reasons we might know you're not treaty shopping is even though if you're not owned by, you know, residents of that country or you're publicly traded in that country. Maybe your ultimate owner is located in a different country that also has a treaty country with the US that provides equally favorable benefits and you could have easily and you could have qualified for benefits under that treaty uh, under the LOB test there say as a public company. So think of a um, you know a a Dutch company is getting interest from the US and the Dutch company is owned by a German company that's publicly traded. Well, you could have just paid the interest or you know lent to the U.S. from Germany, and you would have gotten the same treaty benefits. So the reason you're using Netherlands is not for treaty shopping, right? So that's sort of the premise be- behind mm-hmm. this derivative benefits test. And I think in the example that I that I gave you, you could probably see that those types of structures or those types of situations are fairly common, sure. and why that derivative benefits test is is very very important. The way that we've structured these is you have to have at least 95% ownership by good people, by, by seven or fewer you know, equivalent beneficiaries, they're called. There, there's other requirements as well, but I think we're going to focus on, on the ownership aspect of it. And usually, uh, a equivalent beneficiary in most of these treaties is defined as a resident of an EU or an NAFTA country um, that meets the treaty benefits. The 2016 model, while being a lot more restrictive um, in a lot of LOB provisions, is the first one to include its own uh, derivative benefits test, and it would expand upon the types of people that are that are good residents. But so there's that reference to EU and NAFTA, and that's that's in all these treaties, but then we replace NAFTA, yeah. right? So if you are thinking of, okay, I'm making a, a payment to a Interest payment to a a company that's located in the Netherlands that's parented by a Canadian uh, publicly traded company. You're looking at the treaty and it says a NAFTA country. And you'd say, well, Canada's not a NAFTA country. There is no NAFTA. There's USMCA. And so there's this question as to, well, what do you do for in all these treaties? The US unilaterally put out an announcement saying, look, for for purposes of all of our income tax treaties here, we're going to essentially treat USMCA as a. as a successor, we're gonna transpose NAFTA as the USMCA. But that's unilateral, right? Mm-hmm. That's that's great that the US would do that. That doesn't require necessarily any of the other countries right. to have that same approach, right? And so that's where we've been embarking on our um, Treasury Department essentially entering, trying to enter into a series of what's called competent authority agreements, which are sort of interpretive agreements where both countries will say, look, we will agree to interpret the treaty in a certain way, to essentially get these other countries to to agree. Yes, we, we'll treat we also will treat references to NAFTA as now being references to the to the USMCA, and so we had already had a few of those um, with with certain particular countries, but then in in July, late July, we just published a slew more. So we've got now Denmark, Luxembourg, Mexico, and Malta. All all of those countries. Have now agreed that yes, we will also treat references to in the treaty to NAFTA as encompassing the the USMCA.
0: And then there's a whole number of countries which I'll list off because I do have it in front of me Austria, Belgium, Bulgaria, France, Germany, Iceland, Ireland, Netherlands, Spain, Sweden, and Switzerland, where we do not have that resolution.
1: Correct. And, and we do have also two other tr- the UK and Finland we'd earlier uh, entered into okay. competent authority agreements with. So, so that we have. So, yeah. And, and those are the remaining ones that have the derivative benefits tests in them. So maybe as a concluding thought, so very helpful, very insightful, Mills.
0: Any thoughts, predictions on where or what we might see with U.S. treaty policy? Did Have we broken the log jam now? Or
1: maybe did just a couple of logs kind of shake loose? Any, any thoughts? I think a couple of logs shake loose. Um, I, I think... You know, if you see this thing about, I mean, Hungary is sort of a unique situation in terms of the pending treaty, right? But Chile just got ratified and and Poland didn't, right? Now you have Croatia is going to get added to the list. It'll have to go through the procedures. As long as Senator Paul is around, he presumably is going to continue to object to that treaty. So I I think sometimes you'll see um, if treaties move It may be piecemeal. Mm -hmm. Uh, It may be quicker if, if, you know, certainly the the advantage of the Croatia treaty, since it's post-tax reform, is that it already has the provisions about, uh, beat. it's got the different foreign tax credit provisions and things like that. But I think ultimately the the Chile treaty probably had some, you know, political momentum from the Mm -hmm. business community behind it as well, um, just because... There's a lot going on with you know the U.S. and Chile cross border flows, particularly I think in like the mining industry right now, um, that that caused there to be some political momentum. It's probably not the same uh, amount there or for Croatia or for Poland, but you're going to start. You're going to see things trickle. Okay. You're going to see here and there another treaty get negotiated and, and added to the list at some point. Um, I'd be curious to see what happens with the, with the Taiwan agreement, whether that enters into force. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think one point I didn't make about it is that because the statutory limitation on benefits provisions are, are sort of based on that 2016 model, but only a few of the avenues for qualifying for, for benefits, not all of them are even incorporated into it. You know, even if that does pass and that does get enacted by both countries, um, you know, subject to seeing what procedures the IRS mm-hmm. would would enact into regulations, or promulgate into regulations, it, it's going to. They're not necessarily going to be a ton of of companies that will easily right. benefit from it. So. Yeah. Well, well, as those developments occur, we'll certainly talk about it, and you'll hear
0: about it here on the Cross-Border Tax Talks podcast. Nils, thanks for joining. Great to have you on. Very insightful conversation. Thanks. So thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Cross-Border Tax Talks. Thank you, Nils Cousin, a PwC Washington National Tax Practice International Tax Partner. I'm Doug McConey, PwC's International Tax Services Global Leader. Stay tuned for another exciting edition of the Cross-Border Tax Docs podcast. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates and may sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com slash structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.